Welcome to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. With the tumultuous 2020 election season behind us, a panel that includes members of Brownstein's healthcare group and additional experts from the healthcare industry discuss potential changes to key healthcare laws, the future of healthcare cost containment and telehealth, policy updates on COVID 19, and how these elements will impact the healthcare industry and businesses generally. Brownstein shareholder and founder of the firm's healthcare transactional practice, Mike King, moderates the discussion. On our panel today, we have uh, Dr. K. Elizabeth Hawk, uh, who's dual boarded neuroradiologist and nuclear medicine physician with a PhD in neuroscience and a master's in medical radiation physics, hence all the fancy paper on the wall behind her there. Uh, I think one of the most significant aspects of Dr. Hawk's uh, background that she brings to the table uh, is her work as an internationally recognized speaker in artificial intelligence applications in medicine. And she is president of Ampersand Intelligence, a consulting company focused on the COVID-19 pandemic response. Um, We have Emily Felder, who's a shareholder in Brownstein's Washington, D.C. office and heads up our healthcare policy initiative there. It's a substantial group there uh, with a robust understanding of federal health care programs, private health insurance, and public health issues affecting the country. She'll be our Inside the Beltway insight giver. Um, we have Alex Geyer, senior healthcare investment banker with GLC Advisors, with over 25 years of experience across services, medical devices, pharma, life sciences, as well as deep subject matter expertise in public and private credit markets uh, to comment on the deal-making environment in healthcare. So uh, let's get right into it. It's been an environment that's been fraught. This is our third panel uh, in the series since the pandemic uh, curtain dropped on us in uh, late winter, early spring. And we've been tracking all along the uh, so-called winners and losers uh, healthcare spaces that have been more impacted than others, as well as the impact on real people. Um, Dr. Hawk, maybe you could lead us off with just a discussion of what you're seeing in the trenches uh, across the country with your unique position. Absolutely. Thank you so much for the opportunity to join you all today. Um, it's been a, an interesting time because after the inauguration, after the peaceful transfer of power, I think we all breathe this collective sigh of relief and hope uh, for a sort of new beginning and uh, and a new new dawn. But we woke up the next morning and we were very much still in the thick of the pandemic. You know, as a practicing physician, as a radiologist, I read cases for across the whole country and I'm seeing some of the sickest patients I've seen to date uh, right now. Um, we're in a really tenuous time where our healthcare providers are burnt out and our health systems are stressed, and we're seeing new variants emerge. And that, paired with a, a slower than hope to roll out of the vaccination process, puts us at a really difficult time. Uh, so, while we have a really unique and hopeful, renewed perspective in how we're going to approach this pandemic collectively as a country, we're still facing some very real challenges that we have to. Um, tackle head on with with solutions and, and a collective unity together um, to work toward that future that we're all hopeful to have. 
Well, I think that while we're uh, cautiously optimistic about the future and it is a, a hopeful time, um, we're always realistic uh, optimists on this panel. And, you know, today's no exception. So uh, that's a sobering viewpoint from the trenches. Uh, I know that the vaccine distribution and consumption has been uneven. Have you seen any patterns in uh, willingness of folks to take the vaccine? That's a great question. I think that everyone is so focused on the initial hump of vaccine rollout and all of the technical challenges of getting vaccines into the hands of people to administer them, uh, that we don't really have our eye focused on the larger problem and that's gaining public trust in the vaccine. Uh, we know that there is a disproportionate amount of underrepresented minorities and underserved communities that just don't trust the vaccine, that actually would refuse the vaccine if given the opportunity to receive it. Um, so while right now we're, we're very laser focused on getting the vaccines distributed across the country, we also need to really focus on rebuilding trust in our underserved communities and making sure that when the vaccine is there and available, our patients are willing and want to receive it and trust our healthcare providers in that process. Well, much has been said and written about the disparate impacts of this virus uh, in our underrepresented communities, and much will be written you know, when, when the history books are published. Uh, and I think we can only hope that promotional efforts by the likes of Arnold Schwarzenegger getting his vaccine and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar getting his vaccine, um, that folks just get out there and trust, uh, lest we have a, an acceleration of those disparate impacts. I hope so, too. So, Emily, hopefully you can tell us some good news while we're on the vaccine topic. Um, we've got two that are FDA approved. And uh, to quote, you know, a past political candidate, help is on the way. You know, can you tell us that more help is on the way, hopefully? Well, hopefully, yeah. So we uh, we actually work with um, a, a couple companies that are working on uh, additional vaccines. So Johnson & Johnson actually has their Proposed vaccine um, and data is coming on that. Clinical data we're expecting to see um, in the next week or so. Uh, the good thing about the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is not only are we thinking that they can get a large amount of doses in a re regularly, you know, uh, relatively quick time frame, but also the Johnson & Johnson vaccine only has one dose. So to Dr. Hawk's earlier point, you know, when it's difficult to get individuals to take the vaccine, it's difficult to develop that trust. The Pfizer and Moderna vaccines currently need two separate doses about two, three weeks apart. So the Johnson & Johnson vaccine not only has just the one dose, which gives us hope that more people will be able to receive it and it will be effective for those that receive it, but also we are um, hopeful that we will have um, you know, better distribution because it doesn't need to be at a, a super high temperature like the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine. So the storage is a lot easier. Got it. So Alex, from your perspective, uh, in looking at healthcare businesses and the climate for business, uh, just how important is getting the vaccine disseminated to getting back to something resembling business as usual? You know, Mike, I think it's, um, I think it's critically important and just the, the framework of a return to normalcy and people feeling confident about going out and out and out and about in the community. And, 
and really, you know, I think sort of getting back to normal habits, including with their medical care and, 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 and healthcare routines. Um, couple kind of macro observations on, 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 on COVID. Um, 2020 uh, looks to be the first year of actual decline in U.S. healthcare spending in the aggregate since the government began tracking this metric in the 60s. It was down a couple of percent through September, and that compares to expected growth of in the kind of five to six percent range. Um, you look at the arc of overall kind of procedure and encounter volumes, there's a huge dip in March and April, you know, with uh, elective procedures basically postponed and curtailed. A fairly rapid recovery to near baseline levels over May, June, and July, and holding steady in the fall, and then renewed disruption uh, with this second big surge starting in November and carrying into 2021 so far. But hopefully now we're on the beginnings of what should be uh, a steady decline. But Throughout all of that, there was some degree of persistent risk aversion, even during the phases when COVID case development was relatively quiet. ER volumes remained depressed. The total diagnostic visits were down something in the, you know, over 20 percent versus 2019, with the most glaring shortfalls in specialties such as oncology, cardiology, and, and GI. And volumes were also soft in chronic care segments, which cater to some of the most at-risk patients from a COVID standpoint. Um, so you look at, you know, kind of 2021, I think the general expectation is that it should be a pretty strong bounce back here in terms of utilization, but that start may be delayed a bit, you know, because of the, the need for the vaccination rollout and for the, the confidence to be out there that life can begin to, to return to normal and some of that pent up demand can be captured. Um, but another factor I would mention is, you know, kind of a question mark is really how much deterioration may have occurred in the general health of, of some of those more at-risk populations over the course of 2020. So that's a long-winded way of saying I think the vaccines are, are pretty pretty critical in terms of getting things truly back to normal. Absolutely. And the studies coming out now with uh, year-end numbers rolling in, you know, 2020 now in the books, and we're seeing confirmation of a lot of things that you know, we knew in our gut or through our clients or ear to the ground that people were putting off a lot of uh, core healthcare needs and certainly discretionary healthcare needs. And you know, simple things like going to the dentist for a cleaning, which is not such a simple thing if you put that off for too long, uh, to having your knee replacement, whether it be uh, with a medical device or tissue. Uh, these kinds of things were delayed and uh, remains to be seen, you know, how the public absorbs those delays uh, that leads to exacerbation of other conditions. But from a financial perspective, um, in, in grouping, you know, winners, middle groups and losers, you know, the, the winners in all this, uh, I've certainly seen a, a lot of uptick in pharma uh, with money being funneled into finding cures and lab diagnostics as well. Uh, I think a lot of folks were playing defense on the other end of the spectrum, you know, dealing with patients being afraid to go in for a long time and then having to make extra investments in protective equipment, measures, protocols. Uh, so certainly a return to normalcy when we get there. And hopefully, you know, Emily's uh, references to other vaccination methods and providers in the pipeline helps us all get there. 
uh, will lead to different financial results. But the law of un unintended consequences applies. You know, it could be that uh, certain patterns have been created, uh, some of them good, some of them not so good. And you know, we'll try and end, end on a high note with perhaps some uh, benefits, believe it or not, that have come of this COVID uh, pandemic. But uh, remains to be seen, you know, what trends result from this COVID pandemic. So, uh, Emily, perhaps you could give us some more good news. You know, we'll throw the, the good news opportunity into your lap to uh, talk to us a little bit about potential uh, near-term relief coming from Capitol Hill with the new administration. Absolutely. So, President Biden, um, released a proposal and the Congress's first priority is to try to pass a bill um, to implement a lot of President Biden's priorities on COVID-19 relief. So that includes additional funding for vaccine distribution. That includes additional funding for schools reopening, state and local governments, uh, that sort of thing. Um, it also includes um, funding for community health centers, to Dr. Hawk's earlier point, trying to find distribution centers for the vaccine for individuals who may not want to take the vaccine, who may not trust the public health system. So trying to create more partnerships to encourage uh, utilization of the vaccine. It also includes additional money for providers um, so that, you know, hospitals, doctors, provider groups, were eligible under the CARES Act in 2020 and um, superseding bills to get grants from the government to stay open, you know, to your point earlier, Mike, um, because so many providers shut down all elective procedures, there was significant revenue drops. And so that was intended to backfill um, and compensate hospitals and other providers for that. So we are expecting another sort of injection of funds into the healthcare system in addition to extending popular programs like the Paycheck Protection Program and the unemployment insurance, the additional federal funds for that. So it's a very ambitious proposal. Uh, it totals $1.9 trillion. And right now there's a lot of negotiations going on in Congress um, among leadership as to whether they should make it a bipartisan proposal. So should the Democrats and Republicans work together to try to accomplish this very lofty goal or should Democrats sort of forge ahead on their own? Um, with the outcome of the Georgia races a couple of weeks ago, they now, you know, Democrats now control the Senate in addition to the House and the White House. And so they have the ability through certain budget mechanisms to actually pass a bill with just Democratic votes. And so right now you're seeing a big conversation over, should the Democrats go big? Should they try to get another $2 trillion package through in the next couple of weeks? Or should they dial down expectations and try to work with Republicans? The Republican viewpoint is that maybe we don't need another bill right now. Maybe we just see how things go. We just passed another large bill in December. We passed a number of bipartisan provisions in 2020 to inject money into various areas of the economy. So Republicans are not comfortable with a high price tag. So while there's an acknowledgement that more needs to be done from the federal government, we'll just have to sort of wait and see whether Democrats decide to forge ahead on their own or if they want to sort of compromise with Republicans, which would result in uh, a more moderate proposal getting through. When Joe Manchin is your 50th vote in a 50-50 tie, 
uh, and he's not known as the Bernie Sanders of the U.S. Senate, uh, I think we're probably looking at more measured responses, both in terms of um, government largesse for relief packages, as well as health care reform. Um, talk for just a moment about that 50-50 scenario and the reference to reconciliation and what can and cannot be done under reconciliation. For example, uh, talk of implementing a public option to augment the ACA Affordable Care Act. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, as you mentioned, Joe Manchin is a very moderate uh, senator from West Virginia. Um, he is the sort of the 50th um, senator um, on the Democratic side. And so if you need 50 votes to pass a bill, Joe Manchin is going to need to agree to that bill. And so he has sort of made some comments recently and tweeted publicly about the national debt and how how the country is going further and further into debt, which created a lot of concern from liberal progressive Democrats who want to have a very high price tag on any sort of COVID relief package. That also applies to the public option. Um, So for Democrats that want to go big on healthcare policies, they want to go big on healthcare reform and add a public option to the extent that has a high price tag that's something that Joe Manchin is not going to go along with. Um, And to your point about the budgetary process, if Democrats want to pass a bill with 51 votes, they have to do it through a system called budget reconciliation. Essentially, it's a very tricky, complicated budget process. But essentially, any bill that goes through that process has to have a significant impact on the budget. So it can't just be a policy to say, We want to outlaw the use of e-cigarettes among 16-year-olds. It has to be something that creates a new mandatory spending program. And so um, that's something just to consider as, you know, Democrats think about, well, we really want to go big. We want to be really aggressive. That's still going to be tempered by the budgetary process, the legislative process, and also moderates in their own party. So it sounds like with a 50-50 Senate and Joe Manchin being vote number 50, um, we're probably not looking at a time of dramatic reform. Uh, but, you know, stay tuned because, you know, the private sector uh, may just chip in here. So one of those unintended consequences when, Alex, we were talking about businesses that uh, survived and some that even thrived, Uh, Was it a capitated model, so accountable care organizations or bundling uh, that, especially accountable care organizations that manage an entire uh, population's health for a set number is less exposed than fee-for-service medicine? And so fee-for-service medicine saw the declines that Alex referenced because people were staying home, were not going in as much, and therefore the fee-for-service providers, um, we're seeing fewer patients. But population health groups managing the health of a population not compensated by visit uh, did better financially. And so perhaps an unintended consequence of uh, this COVID nightmare uh, has been some gravitation toward uh, proof of concept for population health management. I'll just throw that open to the panel, see if perhaps that's um, one positive to come of all this. 
I'll start, Mike. I mean, I think that uh, I, I absolutely agree with that. And certainly for for providers and, and ones who are in, in more elective uh, or discretionary oriented areas and suffered through the extreme stress on revenue and liquidity through like that March and April timeframe, you know, the, the, the benefits of having a predictable and secure revenue stream uh, to manage around, I think are, are, are pretty clear. And the payers, look, I think have, have generally always been in favor of trying to move toward that model. And, um, you know, they, they, for a variety of reasons, but not least of which is it, it really does also setting aside that pandemic impact, you know, that does provide some incentive for the, the patient facing providers to, to keep care to, you know, to keep costs down and to, and to really focus more on keeping their patients well versus treating them when they're sick. So Dr. Hawk, I'll, I'll come to you and I'll, I'll set, set it up for you and put you right on the spot since you're a good sport. Um, there are a number of uh, elements that physicians haven't necessarily sprinted toward in the past that have come to fruition here in a crisis. Uh, one of those being population health, as we just talked about, rather than fee for service. Uh, another being telehealth, which you know, any number of physician associations in different states have uh, tried to erect barriers to telehealth, requiring the first visit to be in person, prohibiting across state lines telemedicine, uh, limiting the ability to prescribe medications and opioids via telemedicine, uh, all the subject of much debate and uh, very slow uptake in telemedicine prior to this crisis. Uh, and of course, you know, other aspects being uh, the usage of nurse practitioners, physician assistants, and the expansion in the scope of practice that's occurred in response to the crisis. So, you know, those are just three different examples, but how much of this is a response to a crisis? And as soon as we have herd immunity, we'll go back to the old ways. And how much of this is teachable and will lead to permanent change? Well, I think you need to get back to the heart of what all of this is, and that's the art of medicine. It's, it's a science and it's a business, but it's also an art. And you've got two different humans interacting with each other. You've got a patient and a provider, and we're dealing with a global pandemic, and there's this very strong sense of fear. And unfortunately, fear is, I think, what drives a lot of patient decisions right now. So when you look at where patients are seeking care, how they're seeking care, um, it's really rooted in whether or not they trust that they can safely seek that care. You know, you talk about a decline in dental visits. Well, that translates to me seeing an increase in facial abscess in the ER studies I'm reading at night in my rural ERs. Um, so when you look at patient behavior, they're much more comfortable right now seeking care in safe environments like standalone surgery centers, like standalone clinics that aren't associated with those busy hospitals with the EC, with the ERs and the overloaded ICUs. So creative structures in patient care and certainly creative structures in billing, like you talked about, I think are really the future of where this is all going. Now, in terms of adaptation to change, on the provider side, there has been a traditional resistance to telehealth. They wanted to stay rooted in that art, that in-person visit, that traditional sort of patient-physician bond. Um, and many physicians and other um, healthcare providers had been really resistant to adaptation of that new technology. 
But like anything, a pandemic or a, a crisis sort of forces adaptation in people that were traditionally resistant. So now you see a whole new generation of providers taking on telehealth and embracing it as their only option to reach their patients at the moment. And there's been this tremendous explosion in adaptation of technology and evolution in the way we provide care uh, to our patients. And it really has been a positive. We really have been able to provide a really unique and new sense of care to a whole new population of patients that maybe we hadn't reached as well or weren't doing a great service to. I think that that will continue. I think long beyond the pandemic, what we're seeing is an evolution to a new and better normal, not just sort of a temporary fix that we'll go back to something before. I think we're going to see now that people have adopted this new sense of technology um, an incorporation into their patterns of care and something that lives far on. In terms of expanding the healthcare team to non-physician providers, that's a very heated topic that is hotly debated and certainly could take an entire webinar of time. Uh, again, it gets back to looking at public trust in the care that they're receiving and balancing the need, the emergent need for more and more providers to take care of our sicker population that's seeking delayed care right now, um, but also carefully tempering that with making sure we don't dilute or degrade their trust in the image of the care that they're providing. Um, it's a little bit difficult because there are different state regulations depending on where you are. And traditionally, medical care has really lived encapsulated within each state. Um, and we are seeing um, state lines crossed and, and new and creative solutions for how we're delivering care. So as the medical care team evolves and we look at non-physician providers and how we're delivering care, that will also have to be looked at across different state lines. And I think we're going to all have to come to a more collective solution in how we deliver care so that we don't lose public trust in the care we're delivering in the process. Well, I hesitate to be too lawyerly about it uh, because that old saying uh, Shakespeare, first kill all the lawyers. Uh, <laughs> you know, sometimes uh, laws and regulations are, are there for good reason. And so, you know, Emily, to take the, the counterpoint on the proliferation of these uh, liberalizations of various rules in response to the crisis and whether or not uh, they're here to stay, uh, what is the thinking in terms of uh, CMS and how they're going to respond? You know, they've been very slow adopters of telehealth, just to take one of the examples. And I published an entire law journal article on all of the obstacles to telehealth and all of the different uh, bugaboos and concerns that were thrown out there from uh, privacy violation potential, technology failure potential, uh, practicing across state lines, prescribing uh, drugs without a, a first in-person visit, is CMS uh, likely to take this sample size and say, you know, great, let's continue to roll with this and figure out how to do it on a fee-for-service basis? Or uh, will the ardor for telehealth fade when the vaccine causes the virus to fade? That's a great question. It, it's a very complicated issue. Um, as you mentioned, there's a lot of factors to consider um, you know, I think a lot of folks believe that telehealth in some shape or form is here to stay. It's something that um, patients really like. It's something that people see as a very convenient um, service. And I think if you take away, if that's something that's provided and it's taken away by the government, 
that's not something that uh, congressional members or political appointees at HHS really want to deal with. Um, but it is tricky to make it permanent. And I think there, that if it is going to be permanent, there needs to be some modifications. The first issue is that CMS was able to extend telehealth in new settings and, and more broadly because of the declaration of a public health emergency. So they've already said that is going to last through the entirety of this year. So until December 31st, 2021, there will continue to be those telehealth waivers in place. And so it's really up to Congress to say whether they not they want them to continue because EMS doesn't have the authority to continue those telehealth waivers after the public health emergency concludes. And so let's say it concludes at the end of the year. Well, all of those authorities go away. And so it's up to Congress to make it permanent. Now, the, traditionally, the reason that Congress has not made it permanent is because it scores as a very expensive thing. Uh, the Congressional Budget Office thinks that if telehealth becomes more widespread, it will result in new, additional visits. So doctors will bill um, for more follow-up appointments. People will see the doctor more frequently which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but they see it as something that will be more expensive. Currently as well, a lot of providers are getting payment parity. So whether you see a provider in, in person or you see them on, on the phone or on your computer, they will be billed the same amount by Medicare and, and other insurance providers. And that's another issue that traditionally uh, Congress has sort of advocated for a lesser payment if it's a telehealth visit. So all of those issues have to be, you know, hammered out. It probably won't happen this year because if Congress doesn't have to act, they probably won't. They'll probably wait until it's an imminent problem and then they'll address it. But those are the things that congressional staff are considering and they're thinking about what should the payment be? Should there be any barriers or or requirements to do a televisit? When is it appropriate in what setting? Can we get data from this experiment, this COVID experiment that we've sort of been rushed into to show that it won't be as expensive as we think. Those are all the considerations, but I do expect it to stick around in some shape or form because it has been popular um, on on the patient side. So Alex, talk a little bit about uh, what you see in the pipeline or what uh, folks are projecting in terms of hot uh, subsectors within healthcare. So, you know, all of our discussion around telehealth I think it's immensely popular right now, and yeah. uh, folks are almost pricing in that it's here to stay. Uh, and there, there are ways that CMS could uh, splash that party. Uh, but talk to us a little bit about you know that sector and others that you see being hot. Sure. Yeah, and uh, you know as it relates to you know kind of telehealth in particular, I I, I agree with all of the comments uh, that you and Emily have made on it. I, I would say though that I think. Commercial insurers are well ahead of CMS right now in terms of their adoption and comfort level. It doesn't mean they still don't have concerns around potential duplication and an extra volume being created. And I think there, you know, there's still some proof of concept uh, as it relates to that. But in terms of adoption in, you know, kind of primary care and, and specialty, you know, interface for uh, commercially insured p- patients, I think it's it, it's pretty far along in a lot of parts of the country. Um, I do think that, you know, sort of telehealth and digital tools that allow for virtualiz- virtualization of care 
and increased patient engagement, I mean, it's going to stay a hot area, all right, uh, in M&A. In many respects, COVID has been the catalyst that this space has been waiting for um, and, and, and has also sort of helped, you know, at least conceptually accelerate what, what's been anticipated for a long time in terms of evolving care delivery towards on-demand, you know, like you see in other, you know, kind of technology-enabled, you know, uh, segments around the economy and also greater consumerism and individual sort of individuals ownership over over their own health you know i think the digital tools and 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 capabilities are are you know kind of covid has has really exposed the potential of all of those um, as far as some others you know kind of sectors that uh, that seen as being pretty popular ambulatory surgery centers always come up in this context the safety and convenience aspects of them um, you know, patients favor them, physicians and, and payers, and now CMS continues to expand the covered procedures list and, and hasten migration of surgical cases to ASCs. We don't see that stopping anytime soon. Uh, you know, I think those are going to continue to be um, popular from an M&A standpoint, including hospitals and health systems wanting to, you know, kind of cannibalize themselves, if you will, in a lot of cases. Uh the home health and hospice continuum continues to benefit from the severity of COVID's impact on nursing homes and other senior care facilities, as well as expanded payer coverage. Um, multiple pockets within behavioral care remain hot. You know, substance abuse, eating disorders, depression, anxiety, other forms of trauma, all have 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 spiked in a and 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 been pretty durable from a trend standpoint. Uh, with all the kinds of just ways in which. COVID has disrupted people's lives, um, economically, socially, educationally, you know, kind of you name it. Um, we've talked a lot about the social determinants of health and disparities in access to care and physician groups and, and networks that cater to those vulnerable populations, especially dual eligibles. They were already a prime area of growth and investment pre-COVID, but I would say are only more so now. And then um, lastly, just also seeing a resurgence of interest in some of the areas that have been popular with PE firms over the last cycle, especially in more community-based physician specialties, as well as physical therapy and dental service organizations. Um, would say uh, uh, EBITDAC uh, or EBITDA adjusted for COVID has seen pretty uh, widespread adoption in M&A and credit markets and, and stronger operators arguably came through COVID better positioned to grow organically and via acquisition. Um, favorable changes to the physician fee schedule in the December uh, stimulus package, I think, are a net plus for that also. Um, but the M&A market generally is, is, is pretty robust right now, picked up a lot over the second half of 2020, um, and a lot of momentum to finish the year uh, and into this year. Uh, there's a ton of dry powder among PE firms and financing sources uh, right now, and the, uh, the SPAC craze has added a whole new dimension in terms of expanding liquidity and the, the universe of potential buyers too. So uh, we do have a no acronyms rule on this panel. So <laughs> uh, help everyone out with SPAC. Uh, spe Special Purpose Acquisition Corporation. It's um, you know the latest craze in uh, on Wall Street. Uh, it's basically uh, also known as blank check companies, um, but you know, Companies that go out and, and, and raise money in public markets and have publicly issued shares without a business, you know, on the day they go to raise money, but with a specific charter that the proceeds will be used to go and acquire something. 
Thanks for that uh, breakdown on SPACs, which I, I couldn't agree more. It is a bit of a, a fad right now. When I start getting test, text messages from you know friends from 20 years ago about wanting to do SPAC deals, it, it's jumped the shot. <laughs> right. um, I'll take that as legal advice, but may, maybe the trend has um, gone, gone too far when it's that prevalent. Uh, in terms of other trends that have been longstanding, but certainly in my practice, I see continuing uh, the management services organization model uh, and the partnering with physician practices. Uh, yep. I see those deals continuing apace and private equity continuing to uh, funnel dollars into MSO structures mm-hmm. uh, and, and continuing to do those friendly physician model deals. Alex, are you seeing a lot of those? Yeah. And that's, um, you know, uh, apologies if it wasn't clear, but yeah, that was what I was referring to in you know, kind of a resurgence in, 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 you know, sort of some of those kind of deals, which were a little bit on hold in the first half of 2020 as, as kind of the COVID impact was, was, you know, still so much more uncertain, I would say um, at that point. Uh, I would say, you know, I do think there's a distinction uh, of sorts among, you know, more community-based physician models um, uh, versus ones that are more hospital-based um, and uh, uh, in terms of the, the growth potential and the interest level among PE, not that there is not still sufficient or significant interest in, in, in the more hospital base, but I think the, 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 the you know, kind of the um, very fragmented market and growth potential uh, is seen probably more on the, on the community-based side and, and, and kind of in concert with that next theme of things migrating out of the four walls of a hospital into outpatient or community settings. And I, I, I've seen certainly uh, practices with ancillary services. Uh, so linked services, whether it be uh, ambulatory surgery centers, infusion, uh, labs, diagnostics, uh, procedure rooms and the like, um, treatment uh, devices that augment yep. the core practice that some of those ancillaries are very attractive. Yes, it could be, you know, definitely additive and, and, and profitable revenue streams uh, for the business, you know, orthopedics and physical therapy, you know, for is another, you know, kind of obvious example of that as well. Uh, but yes, those are, those are typically value enhancing to have those other revenue, the ancillary services and revenue streams. So, Dr. Hawk, if you're willing, uh, say a word or two about mRNA and you know what we've learned in the process of development of the vaccine and you know mRNA for dummies. Uh, speaking for myself, you know, <laughs> so that we all walk away from this knowing a little bit more about what I think is one of the benefits to come from the COVID nightmare. Oh, sure. So uh, currently, the U.S. at least has two um, emergency youth use authorized vaccines, um, the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine, uh, both work with basic mRNA technology. And it's important to know that this is not brand new technology. This is something that our scientists have really been working on for decades. Certainly bringing it into clinical use was accelerated in the past year, year and a half, but this is not something that's brand new for us scientifically. Um, It works on the basic principle that we can deliver a a single strand of mRNA to a cell. Uh, It doesn't go inside the nucleus of the cell. It doesn't impact the DNA of the cell, but it does give the cell a basic um, 
code, a basic set of instructions on how to make the spike protein of what the coronavirus displays. And so we basically give ourselves this instruction of how to make a spike protein, goes out to the surface and our body learns how to make an immune response. So it's a dress rehearsal or a dry run. If your body got attacked by COVID-19, your body already knows how to mount an immune response to it and fight it off. Um, It's a really fantastic and interesting technology Uh, that differs from the Johnson and Johnson vaccine, which uh, was referenced by Emily earlier. Um, It's a little bit of a different technology, but also incorporates mRNA. Uh, The Johnson and Johnson vaccine, as she said, is a single dose. It's actually a modified adenovirus, which is like a basic common cold virus, but it doesn't infect humans and give them the cold. Uh, This virus actually does go into the cell, um, actually does go into the nucleus and instructs the nucleus how to make the mRNA to make the spike proteins to mount the immune response. So same basic process, a little bit of a different approach. Um, The reason why the vaccine is so much more durable and doesn't require these refrigeration techniques like the mRNA does is because the adenovirus is just more rugged. It's not as fragile as these single strand mRNAs. Um, Both are really elegant, phenomenal technologies. Uh, Both have been found to be extremely safe and extremely effective. Um, I think we've seen now 22 million doses delivered and a very, very low side effect profile. Um, I myself have been vaccinated and had almost no symptoms from both doses. Uh, So that's kind of it in a nutshell. Uh, Obviously, it's much more complex and elegant and beautiful than that. But um, maybe that gives at least our listeners a basic understanding of what's going on. Well, for those of us doing life sciences deals and uh, trying to get funding and backing for different uh, technologies and treatments, uh, we're used to seeing the valley of death, you know, in life sciences being great. You know, we've got a wonderful idea. And now how do we get across this valley of death to FDA approval? And Operation Warp Speed, like many of the things we've been talking about, uh, really accelerated and removed that valley of death for so many uh, different drug developments uh, Dr. Hawk, what do you think are the long-term implications for investment in the life sciences arena? And are there other opportunities for commercialization? Yes, um, absolutely. I mean, these are phenomenal technologies that can be applied to a number of other different viral pathologies. Um, you know, we can look at them for other different disease processes now that we've sort of had this infusion of funding and this rapid progress forward. Um, So not only I think will we apply this technology to the current COVID-19 pandemic and certainly any variants that emerge out of it, but we can take this and move this giant leap forward into um, other vaccine research, um, really help our global community as we fight future pandemics or even current viral infections that affect our world population. So uh, I think that there's a lot of potential, not just for the global pandemic and COVID-19, but for future health and and for future vaccination efforts. So the the ultimate venture capital fundraise, just not the kind we wanted to have to have. Exactly. Well, one of the things that we uh, need to address, uh, we'd be remiss if we didn't, is the pending Affordable Care Act challenge before the Supreme Court Arguments were heard in early November, and uh, in a nutshell, uh, the Affordable Care Act has probably been uh, one of the most challenged pieces of legislation in U.S. history. We've been doing panels now for almost a decade, and 
there's a while there when I, I got chastised for continuing to keep it as a topic. And yet here it is still very much a topic and front and center. And we could at least theoretically lose the Affordable Care Act uh, sometime this spring. And uh, for those uh, watching at home, I think it's been you know quite a few ups and downs fundamentally. Uh, Justice Roberts saved the Affordable Care Act previously by determining it was essentially a power to tax with the individual mandate requiring people to obtain health insurance. Then the Trump administration passed through Congress the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, which removed the individual mandate, removed the penalty around the individual mandate. Uh, and subsequent to that, a number of states challenged the constitutionality of the Affordable Care Act on the grounds that without that uh, penalty for the individual mandate, the mandate falls, and without the mandate, the entire law should fall. Uh, and to summarize a lot of the back and forth uh, before the court, there are a number of justices, including Trump appointees, uh, who believe that severability is one way to handle laws, and they didn't comment specifically on this law, but a lot of questions around severability and the ability to uh, potentially cast out one piece, in this case, perhaps the individual mandate without casting out the entire law. Uh, Emily, are people running about the District of Columbia apoplectic that the law is about to be thrown out? Or you know, what is the, the belief on the street there? Well, you know, I, I feel like you're right. It's a little bit of like deja vu all over again, um, going through this huge uh, court case in front of the Supreme Court again on the constitutionality of the ACA. Um, but in this case, there's a thought that um, the defenders of the ACA have a, a very strong case. Uh, as you mentioned, it hinges on severability and the, the rest of the law stand if the individual mandate falls. And we've seen indications from oral arguments that most of the justices have a, a, a presumption of keeping the law intact unless the rest of the law just simply cannot function without the individual mandate. And you've sort of seen in the intervening you know, years since the mandate penalty was zeroed out that the law is continuing to function and it's continuing to be regulated and people are continuing to sign up for health insurance. So there's a thought that it's most likely that if the, the Supreme Court does strike down the individual mandate requiring everyone to purchase health insurance as unconstitutional, the rest of the law will stick around. And that means that the healthcare.gov and the state exchanges and Medicaid expansion, everything that was included in that bill will stay. Now, on the off chance that they do strike it down, um, that will sort of give Democrats in Congress and the Biden administration a huge opening to ramp up the Affordable Care Act because they do have control over Congress and the administration. They could, you know, say now that it's gone, we can, you know, pass it with a public option. We can revamp it. We can do something more aggressive. It's not likely, but it would tee up a big opportunity for the Democrats. I think they're going to try to do that anyway. I think they're going to try to expand the ACA and look at options um, through the tool we talked about earlier, budget reconciliation, um, to expand the ACA, expand coverage, and, and in, uh, increase subsidies. But it's probably more likely than not the ACA is here to stay. So, Alex, are you seeing uh, 
analysts in investment banks everywhere and deal makers burning the midnight oil, running scenarios where the ACA is thrown out, or are folks uh, in the deal making community viewing this in a similar manner as Emily? Very similar manner as Emily. I think the betting for a long time, frankly, even before the election in November, was that very likely that the law would be, you know, the, the substantive portions of the law that are in place today would be upheld. And so, the, you know, there's an extreme downside scenario that I don't think anybody is, uh, is really taking into account actively, as far as I can tell. We, we certainly haven't seen preparations for that amongst our clients or, or our uh, deal-making networks. So uh, I think if we were to pivot toward the future, um, and we do have a couple of questions from the audience, and uh, encourage you to use the chat function to lob those in. Um, one around what is likely in terms of the treatment of uh, dentistry and dentistry benefits. Uh, we've got a number of folks from that community in the meeting with us. And Emily, I'd love to get your prognosis uh, from inside the Beltway. Absolutely. You know, one interesting feature of um, the, the Democrat drug pricing bill that was floated last Congress was coverage of dental benefits under Medicare. And they actually used um, savings that would accrue from the drug pricing policies that the Democrats supported in order to pay for enhanced dental benefits and also hearing benefits for Medicare uh, enrollees. So that's something that's currently being discussed in the context of healthcare care um, policies that, that Congress wants to pass this year. We, are, we believe that the first bill that will be uh, debated, as we discussed earlier, is the COVID-19 relief package. So that will be pretty narrowly tailored to imminent issues related to COVID-19 vaccines, opening schools, you know, additional funding for contact tracing, those types of things. But then the second bill that we think Congress will look to, and we've already had conversations with Speaker Pelosi, Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, about moving towards a, you know, ACA expansion bill and a drug pricing bill that will also likely be be done at a purely democratic level. So if that is the case, there could be a lot of savings that accrue through the drug pricing policies and proposals that could in fact pay for dental benefits, hearing benefits. And because that's something that the Democrats proposed last Congress, we think it's likely on the table. I think it would be a very popular um, policy, it would be something constituents have been asking for for a very long time. It, it improves public health outcomes. There's a lot of uh, proponents for it, and really the only detractor has been the cost. So if Democrats can come up with a way to pay for that through a pharmaceutical pay-for, through the drug pricing um, policies that they've put forward, that, that could be very much on the table in the near term. Well, it's an interesting reference to, you know, finding a pay, a pay for. And uh, we had an earlier reference around telehealth to the fact that it doesn't score well. And you know, a lot of this inside the Beltway uh, jargon is incredibly critical to whether or not legislation typically can get through because, you know, more often than not, there, there's a need for some uh, responsible budgeting to pay for, to find pay fors. Uh, and the CBO, Congressional Budget Office, uh, does provide scoring on 
reforms and telehealth doesn't score well, because as was referenced earlier, the assumption is people will consume it more, that the uh, hypochondriac sitting at home will you know, log on five times a day and you know, badger their doctor five times a day. And I would just submit that even if we have Congress in uh, some degree of stalemate with the 50-50 and uh, some, some moderates there toward the end of that uh, bench at the 50 line, I think a lot of things can be done in the private sector. Uh, and so telehealth can be picked up to augment population health, which we talked about earlier, uh, the accountable care organizations, where the goal is keeping a population healthy and not uh, getting CPTs and charging for each fee-for-service visit. If we are trying to keep a population healthy, then who cares if we have telehealth because the goal is to keep them healthy. We're not worried about you know, accruing a charge for a telehealth visit or how do we code that visit. And so I think even if Washington is in some degree of equipoise or stalemate, uh, the private sector and some of the companies that Alex talked about can rise to that challenge and marry up something like population health with increased deployment of telehealth. Uh, thoughts for the panel? I can share some thoughts. I, th- I think when you think about telehealth and you think about you know winners and, and losers, obviously as a physician, I want my patients to win. Like you want more preventative care and less crisis care in the ER. Uh, when you design a system that evolves into more preventative care and earlier point of care and more access of care, ultimately it's going to result in decreased healthcare spending because we spend more when patients are sicker. Um, when you think about winners and losers in telehealth and, and in the technology that's emerging, there are sort of two buckets, one that will deepen healthcare inequities and one that will lessen it. And I think we need to look at the different opportunities available that lessen healthcare inequities, um, increase access to care, increase access to preventative health measures and screening measures, so that ultimately, yes, maybe we will have more visits or a different type of visit, but in the long run, it actually translates to an advantage because we're going to decrease overall spending because we have a healthier population. Um, so really we want the patient to win. Uh, we wanna decrease healthcare inequities and there's a lot of different avenues um, legally and through businesses that we can do this as long as we're sort of mindful of that end game in mind. I wish that the Congressional Budget Office uh, shared your optimism in scoring. Uh, I've put forth that argument that with telehealth, uh, you're preventing more expensive visits on the back end with more preventative visits on the front end, never yeah. mind all the increased productivity of a healthier person. Uh, so the CBO doesn't score that way, though. So if the private sector, and Alex has indicated, uh, is racing forth in some of these arenas, it may well be that the government follows that proof of concept. All right. Well, uh, I'd like to challenge the board with um, a very difficult question. Can we make lemonade out of the COVID lemon? You know, are there some good things that came out of this? Rahm Emanuel once said, uh, don't let a good crisis go to waste. So uh, did we come away with advances in uh, pharmaceuticals, uh, mRNA? Uh, Did we come away with some proof of concept on telehealth where previously CMS was incredibly recalcitrant? 
Uh, did we come away with increases in scope of practice and practicing across state lines that um, maybe those things uh, aren't so awful and could help us address the demographic challenges ahead in our country of boomers retiring and aging and many of our doctors uh, also retiring and an impending demographic challenge there. Um, so have we, uh, I wouldn't say offset because there's no way to offset almost you know, 500,000 Americans dead. Uh, but are we able to make some lemonade uh, out of the lemon of this crisis? You know, I, I can I can give it a, a whirl initially. You know, I think that there's been, um, you know, much more public health awareness about, um, you know, general health care um, you know, wellness practices, right? So you've heard a lot, and Dr. Hogg, I'd love your opinion on this, about um, a, a much less deadly flu season this year um, because people are wearing masks and socially distancing. And, and I've heard a lot of conversations among public health experts about, um, you know, isn't it crazy that two years ago people would come to work with a cold and sit in a room with other people and just sort of, it was just accepted that everyone was going to get sick. And now people have more of an awareness of, you know, hand washing and, and mask wearing and that sort of thing in, in the workplace. And I'll also say, you know, you mentioned telehealth. I think that the private sector has really taken a, a very strong lead in this area. And so I think that you will see CMS, you know, usually the government is like 10, 15 years behind what the private sector is doing. So you're seeing them sort of trying to lurch and catch up. Um, but I think you've seen government become a lot more nimble. Um, usually it takes a very long time um, for the government to act. And all of this, all of these waivers around scope of practice and telehealth and, and um, three-day stay in the hospital and, and, and tr uh, patient transfers, all of that really sprung up in two to three months and then has been in place for the better part of a year. And that's sort of unheard of in the government. So there really has been a, a sort of a, a governmental shift in being more responsive at the CMS level, but then also in Congress, we've seen four major bills pass on a bipartisan basis in 2020, which again was not something any lobbyist would have expected to say this time last year. So I think the nimbleness of government is a good thing and hopefully that will continue um, because people have seen what the government can do, how quickly they can act if they choose to do so. It's a great point. Dr. Hawk? I, you know, I think that they're very, very tough lessons, but there are lessons learned. And I think we need to not lose sight of those um, very simple lessons, like our, our place of business. How are we doing our air handling? How are we conducting basic personnel management? Um, it just gets down to basic protocol, basic procedure, basic day-to-day -day infrastructure of the places we live and work in. I think all of these are lessons that will continue through. Um, the other thing that's really interesting that's come out of this is it's really forced us to do some self-reflection. It's put a microscope on us as humans in the business community and the medical community and shown us where our flaws are and how we interact with one, each, one, one another and what's working and what's not working. And for me, I've seen a lot of change in dynamics around the board tables that I sit on and how we choose to support one another and exchange ideas and, and bring these ideas into actionable solutions. So it's, it's not so concrete as um, mask wearing and air handling and vaccine and technological innovation. It's also really focused 
our self-reflection and forced us to think about how we want to interact and work together. So I think that's also a lesson learned that maybe we don't think about day to day, um, but has changed the way we interact and do business at all levels um, across the U.S. and even globally. And I think it will carry forward. At least I hope it does. Great. Alex? Yeah, look, I think I made this point earlier, but I think in, in a lot of respects, provider organizations, certain types of them anyway, kind of came through COVID stronger than ever. Uh, and a lot of that was driven by the necessity to change and the urgency of making changes, you know, not just safety protocols and maintaining connectivity with patients uh, via telehealth and, and kind of other measures, but revisiting supply chains, capacity management, the revenue cycle, staffing models, you know, all of that, you know, I think was, was you know, had to be examined real time and in a very urgent way, and I think that organizations, uh, in a lot of ways, are 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 better set up and and more efficient operationally, and better prepared um, to handle sort of the next waves of this pandemic or or the or the one that comes next after it. Um, and I would also echo and reiterate that the the social determinants of health theme and and the disparities in access to care theme that have been really laid bare. Uh, by COVID, it has had a very disproportionate impact on minorities, the elderly, and low-income populations, and and also the the providers, you know, sort of rural critical access and safety net hospitals that care for them, and and the you know, sort of holes we have in a lot of respects in our public health infrastructure, and and I would expect the Biden administration to to do some fairly concrete things to address that as we move forward too. Well, it is often said that it is always darkest before the dawn. And I am uh, ever the optimist that we are approaching the dawn, the light at the end of the tunnel in this crisis, but not to be forgotten the lessons learned, so many of which we've covered here uh, in the past hour. And I think that those lessons learned will become actionable during the passage of the Affordable Care Act and immediately thereafter, the individual mandate was discussed as something necessary because we had to get people 20 to 30 to even get health insurance. The young and invincible, as they were nicknamed. I don't need health insurance, I'll be fine. Uh, and I think we all know now more than ever that healthcare uh, is not just a, another card in your wallet. Uh, it's an immensely important element in every American's life in the US economy, 20% of GDP almost, uh, and the lessons learned uh, from this forced experiment across a, a wide spectrum will apply going forward. So uh, I am ever the optimist. My son calls me Mr. Optimist. And I'm hopeful that our next uh, version of this panel will be in person, although the four of us are all in different geographies. So in some ways, you know, COVID's made it easier to pull off an event like this. Uh, so hopefully we're able to do this in person uh, the next time it occurs. But um, we will keep our fingers crossed for Johnson & Johnson and other vaccines uh, to come through with good results uh, for Dr. Hawk and other physicians out there to keep doing their good work on the front lines and get us to that light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, with that, I thank everyone for their participation today. Thank you for your time. And feel free to hit me with questions uh, offline afterwards. Thank you all very much. 
Thank you for listening to the Brownstein High at Farber Shrek podcast series. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Visit bhfs.com for more information.